And please grab your Bibles once more and open with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 23 through to chapter 3, verse 6 this morning. So Mark 2, beginning at verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar the priest and ate the showbread? which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately, plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would work within each one of us. We pray that we would see what you were teaching us here, and not just see and learn what you were teaching us here, but be able to apply this well ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Monday mornings, Mondays in general, Mondays are the indisputably most hated day of the week. We don't like Mondays. Monday mornings are worse than Mondays in general. To think about the great philosopher from America, John Bon Jovi, he uh, he wrote a song which he performed with his band Bon Jovi, I Don't Like Mondays. Now, I don't really know the song all that well, but the chorus came into my head as I was looking at this passage this week. The chorus is basically a repetition of, I don't like Mondays, eventually followed by the last line of the chorus, I want to shoot the whole day down. We don't like Mondays. A study done in North America recently suggests that America is not just disliked but hated for one, maybe all of the three following reasons. Number one, maybe we just don't like our jobs and Mondays we have to turn up. Number two, maybe we've had holidays or annual leave and that's finished and we are back at work. Or number three, the weekend is over and we're back at work. I hate to say it, but for a lot of Christians these days, and it's, I think, becoming very prominent, uh, Sundays have become in some ways a bad day for Christians too. It's a time where we perhaps feel we have to go to church. It's a day where we perhaps feel robbed of time to do those other things that we would like to do because we didn't manage our time well during the week, but Sundays become a burden. Maybe we feel like being told to take a break, just have some rest, doesn't seem feasible. 
and perhaps we feel like we're just ticking a religious box rather than doing something beneficial when we take a day to rest. As I said in the kids' talk, the Sabbath that we read about in Mark 2 would have been a Saturday. And since the creation of the world, there has been what we would call a Sabbath mandate. It's built into how creation and we as humans, as part of creation, function well. There are historical evidences of societies who try to build a a working week which is more than seven days, and it doesn't work. One of the problems with the Roman Empire was that while they had many holidays and criticised Christians for taking one day off, which was ironic criticism because the amount of holidays they had for their gods ended up being more than the one day a week the Christians took off in Rome, it just didn't work. There was no regularity to it. So what we read here in Mark 2 would have been a Saturday. And we might be wondering why today we meet on Sundays. And the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about Sundays being the Christian Sabbath, being the day of rest for us now. There's reasons for that change, which isn't the point of the passage here, but it's helpful for us to understand when we look at passages like Revelations 1.10, which speaks of the Lord's Day, the day which Christ rose from the grave, which would have been the Sunday becoming the day of rest. Uh, That becomes a strong argument, particularly when we build in the timing of the day of Pentecost, which would have been what we now know as a Sunday. Sunday has become the appropriate and right day for Christians to take a break and remember the, the, to, to keep the fourth commandment, which is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, on the fourth commandment, it's become quite prominent to think that the fourth commandment has been completed. So we don't need to worry about taking one day and seven to rest. Don't worry about the fourth one, but the other nine are still in effect. The basic logic of that doesn't quite seem to add up to me. But this is what lots, maybe even most people suggest this day. And they would go to passages like Romans chapter 14, verse 5, which effectively says that you can think of every day as being the same as the other. You don't have to think of every day as being or one day being more important than the others. Now, my problem with using Romans chapter 14, verse 5 to affirm that view is if you go on to read verses 6 and 7, it leads you somewhere difficult where people who see every day as being the same are revealed there to not really be giving full honour to God. The argument doesn't quite add up that the, the one day of rest each week has been completed. Now, that's a lot of information. Perhaps not a heap of information, but maybe it does feel like it's a lot of information regarding the Sabbath. And what I'm really trying to say is that there is a pattern in creation, one that's pleasing to God, one which God himself established in how he created the world that is good for our souls and good for our bodies. And that is making sure that we have one day of rest a week from our normal work, a day where we not only have a physical break from our normal work, but where we spiritually have a more deliberate focus on God. Part of that is gathering with his people, and it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing, but just because it's not a new thing doesn't mean we always get it right. Just like when Jesus was around, people didn't quite get it right. You flash back now, and we jump into Mark chapter 2. We're going back 2,000 years. They have the same creation ordinance that God rested on the seventh day, They have the fourth commandment given to them as well. But this is a day which became very important to them, rightly so. 
So what had happened is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, which were the three religious groups within Judaism at the time Jesus was around. Now, we don't see the Essenes turn up in the pages of Scripture, but they were there. Now, these three groups had decided to add a whole bunch of other rules onto pretty much every commandment, and the Sabbath was not excluded from that. Uh, They somehow had the thought that if all of Israel, if everyone in Israel behaved themselves perfectly and rested perfectly and properly for two consecutive Sabbaths, the Messiah would come back. Now, you might be wondering, how did they get there? There's actually a lot of literature on it, but I won't bore you. Because some of it can be very hard reading to see how culture changes. But, I mean, all of a sudden you've got a day which is meant to be a day of rest, becoming a day of expectation of you behave yourself and we get something good from it. All of a sudden there is a lot of pressure riding on what should be a day of rest. And very likely it became incredibly burdensome. It was a day where your misdemeanours would have been heavily scrutinised. And if you were caught by the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Essenes, even your neighbour breaking one of these rules around the Sabbath, I imagine you would have been incredibly guilt-tripped because you were the reason the Messiah has not come back yet. You were the reason we continue to live with this Roman oppression. You were the reason we still have taxpayers, our brothers in, in blood, robbing us and paying the Romans. These guys like Levi are still hanging around. In a lot of ways, a day of rest had become a day of working so hard to keep standards that had been put in place. A day that should have been spiritually and and physically refreshing has turned into a day of burden. Perhaps it felt to them quite similar to how Mondays would feel for us today. Not really a day that is to be enjoyed. Now, I hope that sets the scene. Because this is a special day given by God. Now, the Pharisees had added a whole lot of laws to this, but we see that they did the wrong thing to do this, but at least they did it out of a good intention. doesn't make it right, but let's try not to paint everything they did as entirely atrocious. They tried to do the right thing, but they failed pretty badly. So that's a scene. It's Saturday in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It's a Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. As they're walking through the field, Jesus' disciples proceed to commit the horrendous, the highness, and the entirely unforgivable sin of plucking a few heads of grain, rubbing it in their hands as if to eat it. Now, what's the sin there? Well, the sin was you weren't meant to, the Pharisees said, prepare a meal for yourself on the Sabbath. They have just broken that rule and prepared a meal for themselves. Can't you see how bad that is? How will we ever forgive these guys? These guys are the reason the Messiah will not come back for at least another two weeks. There are some very strong sensibilities around the Sabbath that have been touched on right here. Verse 24, the Pharisees, they rile up and they come to Jesus. And Jesus, why are you letting these guys do unlawful things on the Sabbath? They have just made a very labor-intensive lunch for themselves. Why do you allow them to break the law 
on the Sabbath. Jesus, they're following you. You are responsible. Give an account for this horrible, horrible thing that's happened. Now, while when we read of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Mark, we don't see in Mark's gospel Jesus, uh, the spoken interaction between himself and Satan. But we do know from the other gospel writers that Jesus responded to Satan with the words of Scripture. He responds to the Pharisees' challenge here with Scripture. He says to them, haven't you ever read? Now, going through Bible college and being trained for ministry in churches, a lot of mentors I had and pretty much every lecturer I had drilled into us that it was not a wise course of action to use words when you're trying to teach someone like, of course, or obviously, or you should know, because it makes them feel silly and little. Now, I haven't always listened to and applied that advice. But some people look at this and say, Jesus is just a grumpy person. He is trying to hold on to his power by belittling the Pharisees in front of his disciples. Haven't you ever read? And you guys, this is your job. Is it your job to know this, to understand these things? Haven't you ever read? Think about David, the greatest king we ever had just before he came king. He did this thing. Now, we have to assume a lot to get a negative view out of Jesus here. I think what we see here, and I'm addressing it because it has become quite prominent, particularly not so much in written commentaries, but on online articles and stuff, there's a, a growing trend to paint Jesus in a not very positive light in these interactions. I think Jesus is giving an honest answer to a misguided question. He does that by directing them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, which we read before. David and his men had been without food for at least three days. Uh, David went to the town of Nob and he met the priest there, Ahimelech. Now, Abiathar is mentioned as a priest here. He was likely a priest elsewhere, more, more, probably more commonly known in the time of Jesus. And he met with the priest and said, give us something to eat. Now, when, we, when I preached on 1 Samuel 21, there were issues with David's honesty in that chapter, which we're not going to address right now because we've already dealt with that. But he says, give us some bread. The priest says, there's only holy bread. And later on, it's referred to in the New King James as show bread. There's no common bread here for you. But it was with this holy bread, this show bread, that Ahimelech fed David and his men. But how does that answer the Pharisees' question? Perhaps we look at this and think Jesus is just giving an anecdotal example that doesn't actually deal with the question that's been put to him at all. You ever had those conversations with people where you ask them something which is meant to be a short answer and they give you an anecdote and you go, that had nothing at all to do with what I was asking. Maybe we're feeling the same sort of way here. Well, I mean, at a surface level, the priests mentioned here, the interaction we referred to back in 1 Samuel 21, the priests would be the only ones who would be able to eat that holy bread, that showbread, at a surface level. And most of the time, that would be the case. But if you look at Exodus 29.33, we see that on very, very rare occasions, the priest can share that exactly how he did. And again, you might be wondering how that's an answer to the question the Pharisees have put to Jesus. what Jesus goes on to say after giving this example. 
As much as the Pharisees and the others had tried to enforce the rules of preserving what we might describe as the, the rituals of the Sabbath, they overlooked the fact that at times, not, not the norm, but that at times, circumstances necessitate that life, and this is from John Calvin, not me, he's far more clever than me, sometimes circumstances necessitate that life rather than ritual be preserved. Jesus goes on to say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a day which is meant to be for the good of the people, not to be a burden to the people. In God setting aside this one day in seven, there is incredible evidence for the amazing care that God has for people. That we can take this day to rest and refresh ourselves in him. And Jesus here in verse 28 says, Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. If we wonder whether the Sabbath continues today, I don't think that Jesus would take this lofty claim of definitive being the Lord of the Sabbath if the Sabbath was going to be completed so soon afterwards. This seems to be an ongoing thing. And as we uh, read in our prayer meeting devotion in um, uh, Hebrews 4 this morning, it seems to be that there is still an ongoing command to keep the Sabbath. God cares for his people. God has set up time for us to rest, to be refreshed, to be reinvigorated in his word and with his people. Now, something I won't touch on, but I'll leave you as a bit of homework. There is actually provision given in the Old Testament for taking the grain of head, grinding it in your hands and eating it on the Sabbath. No law had been broken other than what the Pharisees said was law. God's law had not been broken. Jesus' disciples were enjoying God himself. They were refreshing themselves in the presence of God. Time with one another. They were keeping the Sabbath. Now, before we get into chapter 3, I will note the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They weren't following Jesus the way these other people were following Jesus. They had put in place rules to prevent you from walking too far on the Sabbath. But here it seems they have gone out of their way and are working incredibly hard not to rest and enjoy time focusing on God but to enjoy time trapping Jesus. They're working hard to trap Jesus and his disciples. And they miss the point that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. But as I said, there may be exceptions. We might use different terms to describe these, but acts of necessity and acts of emergency would see us have cause to do work on the Sabbath. Two weeks ago, we had all that rain. 
as much as I would have preferred not to do anything, and in fact I didn't because I have a really bad leg at the moment, we had to call up my brothers and they had to dig a trench for us so our house wouldn't flood. It was that, it was say, I don't care, God's blessed us with his house, let's just let it flood. Let it flood. What's the point? Consider medical workers who often have to work on Sundays because sick people are still sick. They don't request as Christians those shifts on Sundays, but there is often still the necessity for them to work on Sundays. For myself, I don't think preaching, I love preaching, but it's not an entirely restful thing to do. There was a study that came out at the start of last year which said that a half-hour sermon has the same physical toll as eight hours in an office. Now, I'm not sure where they got the science for that from, but it sounds good, so I'm hanging on to it. Not exactly restful, but for the sake of spiritual life and vitality, it is a joy for pastors to work and preach and labour for the Lord on Sundays. It is a blessing to do this. And we should keep these things in mind as we start in chapter 3. Because it's after this failed attempt from the, to, to trap Jesus from the Pharisees that Jesus goes into the synagogue again. And there's a man there with a withered hand. We read in verse 2 that they watched him closely. Given the context, I think we're, we're looking at the Pharisees are still there. The Pharisees are watching him closely. The Pharisees are the they in verse 2. They watched him closely. The way that Mark and the other gospel writers write this, it's not explicit, but I think we could almost assume that this is a trap set up. They have organised for this man with a withered hand to be there, or at least having seen him there, they're waiting to see what's going to happen. They know this man with a withered hand is here. They know that Jesus is coming. And they want to see what's going to happen. So there's a bit of the Jesus, they're probably thinking, he found a loophole before. He got out of the Sabbath thing before. We're going to get him this time. Now, of course, we have another bunch of chapters to read through Mark. It's not the end of the story, which we know. But they're thinking, we've got another chance to get him. They're watching him, not out of a a desire to see God do something wonderful and amazing and to, to restore health to a man who's probably reduced to begging for money because he couldn't work with his withered hand. They go, let's get him. They're using this poor man in their political manoeuvring against Jesus. And you can almost imagine the area in the synagogue would be just thick with tension. Have you ever seen a group of people watching aggressively waiting for something to happen? You see their body language. I'm sure the other people in the synagogue would have seen the tense body language of the Pharisees the pointed looks of Pharisees are going, uh, you can almost imagine the air is entirely filled with tension. The Pharisees know what their trap is. We see here Jesus seems to be very aware of what's going on. I'm sure the other people weren't aware of specifics, but they know something's going to happen. Verse 3. Jesus could have just ignored the whole thing. Jesus could have avoided the man with the withered hand. Could have pretended that there was nothing to see there. Just taught in the amazing, incredible way that he did and gone on his business. 
but verse 3, he says to the man with the withered hand, the one he seems to know is at the centre of all of this along with himself, step forward. He springs a trap, so to speak. It seems to be the compassion revealed by Jesus in chapter 1 definitely wasn't a one-off. Jesus sees a trap, he knows what the trap is, he springs a trap, and then he asks them, what's lawful? See, they've come to him previously and said, why do you allow these guys to do something unlawful, which wasn't actually unlawful? And Jesus turns that question back on them here. What's lawful? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or kill, which is better? Now, remember the commandment they're upset about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why would you not do good on a day which says, keep it holy, being the command given from God? It does not make sense, but the hardness of their hearts was so inclined that that's what they would prefer to do. Now, how do you answer if you're on the receiving end of that question? We, we see here they find a third answer. You could say, well, do good or do evil or kill or heal, but they seem to find this other one of just keep their mouths shut which in and of itself is an answer. They think they have an answer, but they have answered. So he says to them, what are you going to do here? What's better to do? If you have the ability to heal someone and to save a life, are they better off you not doing it just because of the day of the week that it is? That is pure religiosity. It shows that there is a value placed on the ritual rather than value being placed on the life. Pharisees, of course, they didn't answer. The end of verse 4, we see they kept silent. And we see Jesus knowing their hearts and we see his response here. And we see a righteous anger. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. What they have done is sinful. What they have done is incredibly similar to what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is just wrong. They would prefer Jesus be proven false than to see healing. They would prefer to hang on to their power and get rid of Jesus, even if it means this man continues to live with a withered hand. This angers Jesus, it causes Jesus grief. We see not just his divinity, but his humanity coming through here. And he does what is right, what is pleasing to his heavenly father. He heals the man's hand. He tells the fellow to to stretch out his hand, and the man stretches out his hand, and it was healed. Just like that. This man heard and obeyed the voice of Jesus in doing that. But rather than rejoice, rather than consider that Maybe the Messiah is actually here. Rather than see Jesus as a Christ, he has laid claim to being Lord of the Sabbath, a divine thing to do. He has laid claim to being God in that he has the power and authority to forgive sins and he has proven that from earlier in chapter 2. Rather than see Jesus as the Messiah, the Pharisees are just so blinded by their anger. There's that quote from English literature that love is blind and may not see. Anger is not entirely dissimilar here, is it?
They're blinded by their anger. They go away in verse 6 and they plot with the Herodians, which they were supporters of Roman occupation, not allowing the Jews to live as they wanted to live. Pharisees go and plot with their enemies even to kill Christ. Now that alone is a terrible thing to do. But what makes that even more confronting is that Jesus has just spoken to them about whether it's good to do good or evil. Which is better, doing good or doing evil? So on the day that they're upset that Jesus is healing someone, they go off and have a work meeting to try and destroy him. It really doesn't get much sadder than that. We see incredible opposition beginning to mount to Jesus and his ministry. We see Jesus' compassion. We see his love. We see his mercy. We see his ability to heal. We see his divinity. We see the way that God responds to sinfulness with anger and grief. Jesus didn't do what the culture of the day expected him to do. But he did do what was pleasing to God and he kept the laws of God. Now that alone lays down a challenge for us. We should be thankful for the example given to us here by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We should be exceedingly thankful for what he demonstrates for us here. And when it comes to thinking about this one day in seven, the Sabbath... Don't see this day as a burden. Don't see this day as a difficult thing to carry. We should look at this one day in seven and be thankful. We should be thankful that we actually have a day to rest. We've always needed this rest, but I've said this before and it's a commonly said thing today. You ask people how they are, they're not good, they're busy. How good is it that God has given us a day to rest from that busyness? Yes, we're meant to use this day well, but God tells us how to use it well and not burden us with it. He gives us relief. Why would we resist that? It doesn't make sense to resist a rest. And it doesn't make sense to turn something so restful and restorative into a thing of burden. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for what we've read here in Mark's Gospel. We thank you for what is revealed of our wonderful and amazing Lord and Saviour. We thank you that you have granted to us a day of rest, and we pray that we would use that well. We pray that we would use it wisely, and we pray that we would use it to glorify you. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to bless us, and may we be encouraged by the many things we see of you revealed through Mark, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, is God that he can and did do the things that he promised to do, that he frees us from our sins and grants us eternal life. Help us to rejoice in all of these wonderful things. We pray this in his name.